0: this week on Missions Today.
1: I have an aunt and uncle who worked out of India and Sri Lanka for a lot of years, and they came through our home, as well as lots of other missionary families stayed with us when I was a kid, as well as just pastors from India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka that would come through and stay with us. So um, that was my that was my dinner table, right? In, my, in the home I grew up in was people from all over the world um, joining our family. And my dad always said the mission field is where God has called you. So the mission field doesn't need to be foreign. Um, It doesn't need to be outside of your own country.
0: Such a legacy of faith and mission. And it started at the dinner table. Hi, I'm Colin Lambert, and this is Missions Today from Resource Global. Our guest this week was born into a rich legacy of missionaries, but her mission took her on a little different route. She served our country, learned a foreign language, and even helped businesses do their work globally. Dr. Hannah Stolz is an author, a teacher, a speaker, and an academic. She's an associate professor of supply chain management at Lipscomb University and the executive director of the Wheaton College Center for Faith and Innovation, with a focus on women's representation in the business world. Day in and day out, Hannah helps people and organizations integrate biblical principles into their work and workplace, but it was quite the long road to get to where she is today. Let's hear more. Dr. Hannah Stoles, welcome to Missions Today. Great to have you here.
1: Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks, Colin.
0: Boy, we have a lot of ground to cover today. I want to start, though, with your early years, because it's my understanding you were uh, the daughter, uh, are the daughter of missionaries. Tell me a little bit about your growing up years.
1: Yeah, and I'm actually third generation missionaries in my family. So we have a lot of generations that even went before my, my parents. And uh, my father grew up in the Amish Mennonite community in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, moved to Phoenix, Arizona when he was young for his mom's health. And his family had a long history of ministry and going into missions. So early on, he actually went into uh, missions working in northern Canada, in the northern frontier, and then started going to the Middle East and actually ended up in the mid-70s living in Iran, which was an interesting place to live in the mid-70s. So I actually would say that I am a post-missionary kid. Um, Because as you can imagine, around 1978, people started leaving Iran in droves. And so my parents came back to the U.S. and we settled. I grew up actually in in the Midwest, in Indiana, and then St. Louis. And it was interesting kind of in thinking about being a post-missionary kid. I have an aunt and uncle who worked out of India and Sri Lanka for a lot of years. And they came through our home, as well as lots of other missionary families stayed with us when I was a kid, as well as just pastors from India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka that would come through and stay with us. So um, that was my that was my dinner table, right? In my, in the home I grew up in was people from all over the world um, joining our family. And my dad always said the mission field is where God has called you. So the mission field doesn't need to be foreign. Um, It doesn't need to be outside of your own country. So while he was in Iran, he was on the mission field in Tehran. But while in the U.S., he said his mission field was every construction site. My dad was a a finishing carpenter. He said the mission field is, you know, where I show up on Monday.
0: Talk for a moment about your experience as a child with all those kind of people in and out of your doors. Uh, We've actually here on the program talked before about research uh, related to those most inclined to do ministry and mission work or those who were exposed early on to mission-type activity or ministry-type activity. What, what are some of the things you take away from those years of those folks being at your table, sharing about God at work around the world?
1: Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I would say that, you know, as a kid, your impressions aren't always super deep. So it always struck me how amazed they were by our grocery stores when we went shopping and all of our choice, which we are very blessed. Um, I think in terms of the conversation around the table, one of the things that I noted is how blessed we are in the US um, for sure, especially with pastors that were you know native Indian or Sri Lankan or Pakistanian coming through and, and some Iranians that came through over the years as well. The other thing that I recognize and I think definitely people coming off the mission field and coming back to the US, uh, even within family members that there's some disgruntledness, and unrest with american church culture maybe perceptions of apathy or lack of service sometimes or lack of support and at a really young age it impressed on me the desire because i always you know wanted to be a, you know somewhere global myself and always wanted to work internationally it impressed on me that maybe the path that i would work towards in the future would be to have a job and a skill set that would pay me to be global, as opposed to looking for the support from the church to send me global, if that makes sense. Um, So really early on, I had this kind of mindset of if the church supports you, you're going to be disillusioned. (laughs) Um, If your job sends you, maybe that is a better option because you don't have that tension with the resources you need to do the work, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And that's always a challenge for folks in the field, whether it's being raised through the organization or people are having to raise their funds independently. It is always an ongoing struggle and and part of just sometimes the ability to even do ministry because you're spending so much time trying to to raise the funds or find the funds to be able to do the work. Well, you, you took an interesting path. I understand, uh, you were a soldier for a period of time before you kind of got into the world of academia. If I'm, if I'm following this correctly, tell us a bit about, uh, you becoming a soldier.
1: Yeah. Which, um, was unprecedented in my family history. I you might've picked up my dad grew up in a Amish Mennonite family. So I am the first of my maiden name is actually Stoltzfus. I think I'm the First Stoltzfus in my direct family to ever pick, take up arms. Uh, Amish Mennonites are pacifists, if you didn't know that. And so really it was motivated purely by educational benefits and the opportunity to get training that could potentially lead to a global job. So I enlisted and um, planned to do pre-law and then go JAG. So the army um, kind of core of lawyers. And when I enlisted, I must have done okay on the entrance exams into the Army because I was placed in psychological operations as a cultural analyst. And so part of being a cultural analyst in the Army is that you have to linguist qualify. And so my two options to linguist qualify were Arabic or Mandarin. And, you know, at that time I decided, well, we've already proven that we'll go to war in the Middle East. I'll learn Mandarin and then maybe I'll make it through undergrad without getting deployed. So um, that led to me actually majoring. And linguist qualifying in Mandarin pretty early on, which was very strategic, not intentionally, but ended up being strategic because about that time, um, we saw a ton of U.S. manufacturing move to China. And so by the time I did finish my undergraduate degree in international political economics and Mandarin, I ended up not going to law school. I got my MBA instead, and I worked for a few years as a buyer, for an import company that was looking to expand their supplier base from uh, Central America and India to Asia. So I got to spend a few years applying that Mandarin was Mandarin skills a little bit, but I also realized, especially working in a global space and in, in, in supply chain management, which, you know, we hear a lot about supply chain management the last two years for sure. Um, you literally go into the office every day and put out fires. And so you're, you're problem solving You're you know, uh, figuring out how to get a shipment, you know, moved, you're figuring out, you know, what the weather delays are going to do and a delivery. And, um, and it's exciting, and it is fast paced, but you don't get a lot of time to think. And I love thinking, and writing, and um, apparently teaching and talking. And <laughs> so if you want to get if you want to get paid to think, you need 20 years of experience, I guess, to become a, you know, a thinking consultant, or a PhD. So I went the PhD route mainly because I wanted to write, I wanted to think, and I wanted to get paid to do it. So I guess I made a lot of life choices based on resources, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, We're gonna get to those resources a little more in just a moment, I wanna ask you about just your thought process uh, before you headed into the Army, during the Army, after the Army. You said early on there was this desire to be able to do some international work to make sure that there was funding for it, did you have in mind uh, from the beginning uh, mission or faith as part of that? Was that part of your mindset?
1: Yeah, actually early on, um, we know very little about anything in the world, right? Especially when it comes to global. Um, So early on, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to serve people globally and to be a resource. And um, I didn't have a very theological articulation for it, but um, I knew that I wanted to do something international where I could help people. And it was missionally oriented, but not in the traditional mission sense. So I think I was like, bam, you know, the, the business's mission and um, the bivocational mindset, even before those were trendy. Um, and so I always imagined that I would get a law degree and do something in humanitarian law. That was what I imagined doing. Um, I had no idea how hard that field was to get into or what that would look like education-wise. And then um, as I went into the military and, you know, did some, actually have multiple job qualifications there, really thought I would go foreign diplomacy corps, and maybe work in that space. And then God has a, a really, maybe not funny, maybe it's a sovereign way of directing our paths. And it was actually through the army that I got my MBA. I was in public affairs about four years in, I was in a public affairs attachment and I had a first sergeant that said, Hey, I think you still have some educational funds available. Why don't you get an MBA? Um, you can probably do it for free. And so that was, you know, the, the mindset and choosing, like I could go into debt for law school or I'll get an MBA. And I got into the MBA program. And I had always thought about marketing in the consumer space. I hadn't thought about the business to business transactions and how global business is now. Everything. And, you know, if you go to the store and buy something, something on that product at some point in time was somewhere else in the world. And I was just fascinated by the fact that, in, you know, in business, you get to build relationships. You can be in an entry level buying job and go in every day and talk to people all over the world. And I just thought, wow, what an amazing opportunity to get paid and to serve God and build relationships and love people. And such a fun way.
0: That's, that's amazing. Before we move totally past the Army, I, I always like to find out what people have learned along the way uh, on their journey, a takeaway or two from your time in, in the Army other than uh, learning Mandarin.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had three different occupational specialties while I was in the Army. So I started off as a cultural analyst, worked in ordnance, so actually ran explosive warehouses for two years, and then I qualified as a broadcast journalist and one of the things I, I grew up very booky. So, you know, book smarts, good student, not athletic. And you know, the first the first two nights of boot camp, I'm pretty sure I cried myself to sleep. Uh, like what have I gotten myself into? But the amazing thing about the army for me, first of all, I realized I can put myself way outside of my comfort zone. And even if I'm not great at push-ups or running or, you know. Uh, having a rucksack or, you know, marching for hours and hours on end. In any situation that you're in in life, God has uniquely gifted each of us specifically. And um, I realized that even in situations where I might not be the most athletic, there's other ways that I can actually flourish. Um, And for me, a lot of it came down to the fact that I grew up in a really great home. My parents weren't like, you know, harsh disciplinarians, but I grew up in a really secure home. And I realized that maybe because of that, maybe personality, I don't panic when there's chaos all around me, and it gave me a lot of confidence in going into situations that are really distant, really uncomfortable, and being able to navigate that situation without kind of losing my sense of self. And the army definitely taught me that because there were lots of things I did in the army that I was very uncomfortable with, like jumping out of helicopters and, um, you know, sleeping in the field and all, all the different things that you do. And it really taught me that you can, you can flourish even if you're completely outside of anything that you're comfortable with in life at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing uh, what we actually can do as humans sometimes if we're pushed to limits. And uh, certainly you would see that in the army. Uh, what led you into academia and and how did that start? And what was your mindset uh, going into academia?
1: Yeah, I actually had taken, um, I had taken some time off. My kids were really little. And while I was in my time off zone, I started teaching adjunct at night. You know, if. If you've had babies or toddlers, they're not—they're um, adorable and cute and lovely, but they're not conversationalists for sure. And so I needed some some intellectual um, outlet, I guess. And so I started teaching for a local college. We lived in the Chicago suburbs at that time for Judson University, and in the classroom It was super intimidating. I was like in my mid 20s, and I was teaching adult continuing education, so I was like the youngest person in the room by a good 10 years, and. Um, just realizing that how much fun it is to kind of take ideas and put them in together in ways that people can apply them in their lives that are useful. And I just love that. I love that journey of like reading and learning and then putting it into practice. And um, one of the things I realized in adjunct teaching was that I didn't want to teach somebody else's textbook. Like if I'm going to teach, I want to be an expert and I want to write the books. I want to know the literature myself, you know, as much as I can And so we kind of hit a point where, first of all, adjunct teaching doesn't actually pay. And so I was teaching more and more classes. My husband was finally like, this is more of an expensive hobby. Uh, Maybe you should do this for a career and maybe you should get a PhD. And so uh, when my kids were 10 months and four years old, I started a doctorate in logistics, which is a crazy thing to do looking back on it.
0: Wow, well, it's incredible. And uh, obviously, you have come a long way in your engagement with the uh, global supply chain management conversations, conversations about wisdom-based business and, and women in business. And I want to touch briefly on all of those before we run out of time. Talk for a moment about your thoughts behind your uh, wisdom-based business process and specifically what you're trying to accomplish with both purposeful and profitable business ideas.
1: Yeah. Um, thanks, Colin. And I actually think this, this question kind of overlaps all the things that we're going to talk about, um, that wisdom informs us in how we view profitability and women in some ways. Um, so if you, if you don't know wisdom, uh, literature in the Bible is a specific group of books. So including Psalms, Job's, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And they were, bu- they were books that were recorded by court scribes to record best practices in the land. And you know, it's David's court, it's Solomon's court. So we know that these, um, these you know, courts were both practical, but also spiritual and religious. That it was, you know, if you read Proverbs, it's what's right and wrong and how do you discern it? And that is at its core, what wisdom is. And what I love about wisdom literature, um, before I started my PhD, actually, I was at a Bible study, it was a women's Bible study. They were reading Proverbs 31, because that's what you read to the women um, in most churches. And I was listening to the passage, and I didn't have the supply chain language yet for it, because I wasn't an expert in supply chain management at that point. But as I was listening to it, just with the soldier and MBA background, I, I kept thinking to myself, man, I get that she has a husband and kids, but not much of the activity in this in this passage has anything to do with domestic life. It's all marketplace she's sourcing raw materials. She's transforming goods. She's like, it talks about the passage. She's like expanding her portfolio. It's profitable. She's blessing the poor with it. Her servants are happy, her employees, you know, and I'm like, I just really think there's more to this. And so I, I really spent eight years thinking about Proverbs 31. And when I finally landed at Wheaton college, I had the opportunity to do a master's in Bible. And I certainly don't think you need a master's degree to read the Bible and have God speak to you through it. But um, in that journey, really realized that wisdom literature um, personifies wisdom as Lady Wisdom, this woman in the ancient Near East, and opens with Lady Wisdom, compares her to Lady Folly, and then closes with Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 10 through 31, which is an A to Z acrostic standalone chapter in the Hebrew Bible. And what I see in wisdom literature is that it does not it's not just ancient practices for 3,000 years ago. The more I got into doing business research as I launched into my PhD program and then doing, you know, business research as a professor and a supply chain scholar is that so many of the best practices today are all present in proverbs 3000 years ago. And so wisdom literature isn't just it isn't it isn't just practical in terms of like being righteous or good. It's also practical in terms of what's good for business and what's good for profitability and what's good for Um, You know, your work ethic and how your employees are treated and all of these things that come up in wisdom literature.
0: I think one thing we hear more and more these days, at least uh, through the programs that I've been able to host here on missions today, is more and more of a move to the idea of integrating your faith in your work and the idea that that your dad shared with you early on of wherever you are that's your mission field again i think uh, in my years growing up being a missionary always meant going somewhere now it could be going across the street because uh, you have an international neighborhood right around you so as uh, someone who may be listening today who uh, has a business they're in business or they work at a business where they may have an ability to influence that business and and have some desire to engage wisdom to engage faith in some way what maybe are some starting points for them that really is one of the things we want to do every week here is is give people something firm that they can grab onto to start making those moves sometimes we call it you know giving god your yes that first yes taking that first step what do those first steps look like for someone who wants to integrate faith and work
1: that's such a great question i think we have historically thought like oh You know, have a Bible on your desk, wear a cross necklace and preach the gospel. And those are all great things to do. Um, There's nothing wrong with any of them. But if your life isn't telling a gospel story, by the time you open your mouth, it's too late. And so I think there's a couple of things really practically that we should be thinking about as we go from Sunday to Monday. And the marketplace is probably one of the biggest mission fields in the world. You get to if, we, if you have a nine to five job in a corporate environment or an eight to eight job in a corporate environment, probably, um, you get to interact every day with people who may never set foot in church. So they might not meet Jesus that way, but you bring Jesus to the office every day. So I think the first thing we need to do is think of ourselves as servants. Think of ourselves as bringing the gospel into the workplace and how do we love people really well? every day. Because if you love people really well, they're going to ask questions, it's going to start conversations, and then you can tell them how much God loves them too. So I think the starting place is really loving people and um, opening it up to build a relationship and start conversations. Um, the second thing that I think is really exciting is that the Bible actually has a lot to say about business practice. So it's not it's not just about preaching the gospel. Definitely a part of it is preaching the gospel, but the Bible talks a lot about the quality of our products, pricing. I mean, Proverbs 20 through 22 talks about pricing and mispricing or fair pricing like so many times. Like God cares about our pricing. Are we fair? He cares about how we do business. And so I would encourage you if you're thinking about how do I do this? How do I integrate my faith? Love people as a reflection of your love for God. And then read Proverbs.
0: Integrating faith into your workplace. Love people. And read proverbs short sweet and pretty simple if we'll just take it to heart you see the heart of the gospel is love God's love and provision for us through his son Jesus Christ and he's given us his word as a guidebook through this tough journey we call life and as Hannah shared the proverbs are filled with wisdom for every day for so many areas of our lives Now, she works in the field of business, obviously, so much in Proverbs is about business. But whatever area of work you're in, there is great daily wisdom for all of us there. Speaking of daily wisdom, did you know that there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs? If you've never had a regular Bible reading plan, why not consider, at least for a time, reading one chapter of Proverbs each day for a month, and then do it again the next month? The chapters are fairly short, it's easy to get through, and there is some great, great wisdom there. I believe each time you read it, you're going to be filled with that wisdom that God's Word provides. And if you'll do it consistently, I believe each time you read through it, you're going to find something new. Something that meets you where you are just when you need it. Oh, by the way, Dr. Stoles has some great tools as well, available for individuals and businesses. And you can find everything you need to know at her website, HannahStoles.com. We're going to link you there in today's program notes. Now, before we wrap, I want to take a moment to ask you this. I was just talking about integrating faith and work and how God, through his word, has shown us he is love. He first showed us in creating us in his image. He showed us many times through God's word. And ultimately, he showed us in the gift of his only son, Jesus Christ, who he brought to earth, allowed to live a sinless life. He died on a cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and will come back again. If you are listening to this, you're hearing about faith and work, and you're not even sure you have faith today, let me ask you this. Are you willing today to commit yourself to Jesus as your leader, your boss? We're talking business. Those are business terms, but that's really what lordship is all about, making him boss, allowing him to be the leader of your life and to be able to just lead you on a regular daily basis. Are you there? Are you in a position where maybe nothing else is working or has worked and you need a leader in your life? There's no better leader than Jesus Christ, and God's word will provide distinct understanding And guidance and vision for what's to come in your days ahead if you've never made that decision there's nothing magic about this prayer but would you just pray with me this from your heart if you mean it God's gonna transform your soul say father I I I know that you have provided Jesus as a sacrifice for my sin I know that I've done wrong I know I've done things that you don't approve of and I ask you today father to come in to save my soul And I want Jesus to be the leader, the Lord of my life. And I ask these things in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, what a great day to make that commitment. And if you've made that commitment, I would love to hear from you. Please email me, clambert at missionstoday.com. clambert at missionstoday.com. I'd love to hear about your mission as well. What has the Lord laid on your heart? What is he doing with your mission, with your calling? Where is he asking you to go? What is he asking you to do? I want to know. Email me, missions.today.com. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're going to talk with a man whose organization is fighting the overwhelming crime problem in Chicago, one life at a time. It would be so helpful if you would subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes, and share it anytime you get a chance. Again, if you have feedback for me, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, clambert at missionstoday.com. And if you made that decision today, clambert at missionstoday.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Missions Today Radio, a production of Resource Global.